good thing I noticed. <laughs> Okay, my guest today is uh, Mike Barbera, an old friend of mine I've known for a long time, of um, Real Living Barbera Associates. So I want to even just off the get-go dig into what that means in the business, but let's just start with, tell us what, uh, what does you guys do? What is the business? Sure. We're a real estate brokerage uh, with our primary office in Worcester. We also have an office in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston that we opened uh, going on three years no kidding. Um, yeah. So we do uh, about 80% of our business right now, 80 to 85% is in the residential space uh, with the balance of it being in commercial sales and leasing. So are you in between all the different offices or do you kind of work out of one location? Yeah, I, I spread myself between the two. Um, the way that, that real estate broke, most real estate brokerages are structured is it's a collection of independent contractors and our contractors, our agents uh, live throughout the state. So even though we've got the two brick and mortar locations, most of our agents work primarily from what I would call semi-remotely to remotely. Sure. So I do spend the majority of my time. I live in Worcester. Um, so I, I come into the Worcester office frequently and I get out to Cambridge uh, pretty frequently as well. But in essence, they're sprinkled all around and they're in the office if they need to be. That's why they're there as like a home base if they need somewhere to go, but they're mostly out on the road or at home. Exactly. It's, it's transitioned to that. It, you know, it used to be 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, uh, the majority of agents would come in the majority of days and that's not the case anymore. What Just, would they be doing the majority of days in an office? So it, in the office, primary re, uh, responsibilities or activities would be in the, along the line of prospecting, generating new business. Uh, and of course, servicing too. A lot of, uh, a lot of what we do is outside of the client facing portion uh, of the real estate transaction. Like what? So we, of course, what the client would see was the, the time are the times that will be at showings and inspections, but all of the servicing components, uh, contracting, uh, or generating contracts, negotiating, um, I'd say probably 70% of the real estate transaction takes place outside of the face-to-face -face client interaction. Mm. And it, it's always been a bit of a mystery, your, your industry to me. I mean, it's, it's one that everyone uses and everyone is familiar at the surface level with, you know, the seeing the house, the buying the house. But how, I mean, I'm getting way ahead of myself and we'll go back, but in, in your business, how do you differentiate? How do you be different than the real estate agent next door? Because it seems like there's so many of you guys, but they, not everyone's good at it and not everyone, it doesn't work for everyone. How do you, maybe we'll back up and answer the question this way. You're under Real Living, which is a franchise, right? That's but, accurate, yep. But then it's Barbera Associates, and that's the family business that I think your dad started, and then you've now taken over. Correct. So how, uh, I get, we'll just start there. Mm -hmm. How much of the franchise governs what you do, and how you behave, and how you act, and how much of it's the family or the small business, and how do they interact, and you know, I'm, I'm interested in how that business, what does that do for you, the franchise, and sure. what do you do for it? Sure. Um, I would say that broadly speaking, real estate franchises are less controlling of the day-to-day -day business than the franchise model might be in other sectors. For example, you know, when you think of some of the biggest franchises like a Subway, yeah. uh, their business systems are, are pretty rigid, is my understanding. Um, supplies and things are, come from the franchise. I would, I would put real estate franchises on the other end of that spectrum, where uh, in our case, uh, specifically with Real Living, uh, the franchise exists for support and they generate a lot of our technology uh, and also for guidance. Um, but we run our business uh, 
pretty closely to how you may run an independently run brokerage. Uh, That's what I was wondering. They they primarily get involved or help out with like your website and different probably platforms or technology or MLS and all that sort of stuff, right? Is that exactly accurate? So that's, I mean, that's one of the primary benefits is, is the uh, just economy and scale and the ability to uh, invest more resources and sort of the technological things that we as franchisees or as broker owners can use. Um, And then also the networking component, uh, our particular franchise and course being a bit biased but we our, our network the other be biased so that's the whole point of having a business right, <laughs> right you should be i suppose um our, the network of the other folks that are involved in the real living companies um I've, I've found to be just a tremendous wealth of information and, and a, really one of the greatest resources so then that's really cool and that probably helps a lot to have that behind you but then what like what about your business? It comes from the Barberas. What's the what's the twist on it? You know, is there one? Is there and sure. and what is that? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, so the differentiator, I guess, is what we're driving at. Um, and you touched upon probably uh, the most important component of that. There are sixty five thousand real estate licensees in the state of Massachusetts. It's a lot of uh, people who hold the legal right to act in the capacity of a real estate agent. Um, of those sixty five thousand, it's a minuscule fraction that practice regularly. And of those who practice regularly, it's an even smaller fraction who uh, complete a sufficient amount of transactions over the course of their career to get good transactional experience. So there's major differentiation from someone who holds a real estate license and someone who uh, deals with real estate brokerage truly as their profession. And then within that, there's even subcourt tiles that uh, will it really drills down to a small number of folks doing the majority of the transactions out there. Yeah. And I imagine that's an unfortunate thing you have to come across and constantly defend. Um, it's not unique to your industry, but I, I, it's probably a bigger problem in your industry, kind of like it is in mine in marketing or in like personal training where, you know, out of every 500 personal trainers you meet, probably one knows what they're doing. And maybe that number is too aggressive, but you know what I'm talking about. That sentiment is absolutely accurate, and uh, it's a major problem. We've got a major PR problem in, the, in the, the optics of our industry. I think that we're sometimes uh, lumped with the likeness of used car salesmen. Sure. Nothing against used car salesmen. I'm sure there's wonderful uh, used car salesmen as well. but uh, More the reputation that precedes the used car salesman. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're sometimes meeting a client for the first time, they're counting, not sometimes, anytime we're meeting a client for the first time, they're counting upon the experiences they've had with real estate agents in the past, and they've not all been favorable. It is a very, very low barrier to entry. Yeah. It's very inexpensive to become a real estate agent. It's very easy to become a real estate agent. It's about 40 hours of uh, pre-licensure class that you need to take and you need to pass a test. And now you're supposedly equipped to go out and help people with the most important transactions in their life. And it's, it's inadequate training. So what I try to do here at Reliving Barbera Associates is make sure that we're hiring only the best, only the most motivated, only the most ethical real estate agents and making sure that they're trained with the right resources to be the top tier professional uh, agents in the, in the areas that we serve. So how do you how do you go about trying to do that? Where if you're trying to hire the best and train the best, it like is it mostly the training and the way that you handle the customer relationship? In other words, it, if we drive down the street here, there's going to be five other real estate companies, right? And how do you recruit as opposed to that same salesperson going there, coming over here? What is it that's different under the Barbera shingle? Sure. So it starts with the selection process. Uh, so we're, we're very selective in who we invite to work here. We're a company with two offices and 30 agents. There are individual offices that have over two or 300 agents operating in the state. 
So we are, our, our size is deliberate uh, and it allows for direct oversight and not oversight so much as support uh, for our agent base. Um, so it, it's, it's vitally essential to me to make sure that we attract the most um, committed and, and capable agents that are out there and then help them to bring their businesses to the next level. So I want to go back, like I said, now thinking about the business and your dad founded it, right? Your dad started it. Right. So he, uh, prior to the affiliation with the franchise, uh, my father was, uh, he was a teacher. Both parents were actually teachers and uh, my father had some investments in real estate earlier in life. He had a couple properties, investment, student rental housing properties, uh, maintained a real estate brokerage license since the seventies, but never actually actively sold. Then around, uh, 1997 began an independent, uh, real estate brokerage, Barbera Associates Real Estate. Uh, ran that uh, through 2007, 2008 when the market, uh, as we are all aware, um, tanked for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. And at that time, he uh, transitioned into a property management company, began a tr- property management company. Uh, I had been licensed since 02. I got in, licensed. In, b- before you go on, go property yeah. management, you mean like so when everything crashed and tanked, they couldn't. He couldn't sell as many houses, so he was getting more into managing the ones that were around or were under the control. Try to like right. service the ones you have, as opposed to trying to find new ones. Yeah, g- generally speaking, real estate brokerage was, of course, very difficult when the the volume of transactions and the average sale price reduced. It, it boom made, made it very difficult. And yeah, it happened very quickly, as uh, as many of us know. Um, so he was. Uh, looking at other opportunities, other ways to, to generate revenue with his skill set. Didn't want to go back to teaching. Um, so he, he partnered with uh, a friend of his uh, who was acquiring some properties and, and built up a sort of a boutique uh, property management company that caters to primarily student rentals. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What, um, what made him go from teacher to real estate agent? What was the catalyst for that? You know, it, it's tough, always tough to speak for someone else, but... Um, you can from, speak roughly. I just want to sure. get in from there to you taking over. So I just yeah. want to kind of understand how the how the shingle got hung by the street, you know, sure. to begin sure. with. So I think uh, teaching is, is a grind. Uh, he taught special education, and my mother was also involved in special my education. My wife teaches special education. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a tremendous gratification that they've, they've both received from it, uh, and they've, I know they've impacted positively a lot, a lot of lives. Um, but my father was in the public school system, and, it, you know, I, from what I gather, it was uh, a taxing uh, to some extent. And the teachers, you know, no, no doubt, burnt out you no know, doubt. after a period of time. And, and, um, and he had always, always had an interest in real estate. He, had, he was involved earlier in his life in, in a family real estate company, actually, um, again, owning student rentals. So he had a great knowledge base, and uh, it was a good transition out of the, out of the teaching gig. And what, what did that, so at the time when the economy went boom, were you already working with the company? Were you already uh, yes. an agent here? So what did you do before that? Or did you always kind of know that was your path because you saw your dad doing it? And Yeah, I had, I had some exposure. So in 2002 is when I got licensed. It was my senior year of high school. Um, and I had, of course, some exposure to the industry and it, it was something that interested me. Um, got my license, uh, basically dabbled a little bit uh, throughout my college years. I attended college out of state. Um, and then upon graduating in 2006, uh, I worked a little bit in the, I guess, on the property management side, uh, more in the maintenance of the, some of the properties that we owned. Uh, and then 08 is when I took a more active role in, in real estate as he was uh, sort of positioning his exit. And um, that's when I took management. And that's when we joined with the Real Living franchise. So did you architect the Real Living uh, it was man. actually, you know, I guess that that would have coincided with when we when we sort of um, diversified when, when he went his direction with property management. 
uh, it was uh, it was all kind of brought together. It was actually one of our agents, uh, Brian Allen, um, who's been with our company. Actually, one of the agents has been with us the longest, who um, identified the franchise, which at that time was a very very unique franchise, and that it was a small, family owned, privately held oh, cool. franchise. And uh, now it's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, and there's been several iterations of it between then and now. Um, but it's yeah, it's drastically different. Has it been mucked with since it was taken over? By Berkshire, has it has anything changed, or the relationship oh, kind of yeah, stay the it's same? It's been transformative. Um, yeah. So it went from uh, a small Ohio-based franchise where we were the only real living franchise in Massachusetts for quite some time. Uh, then it was acquired by uh, Brookfield Asset Management, a Cana- I believe it's a Canadian private equities company, uh, and then uh, acquired more recently by uh, Berkshire Hathaway. There's been all kinds of changes to leadership, but we actually um, are pleased with the, the direction that the, the franchise is going right well now. i mean it's a winter firm so hopefully right. you get some you good could, guidance you, out of that right you don't wind up with more scale so our parent the parent company of real living uh, is um, home services of america which is the largest global real estate company uh, by transaction volume they've got one competitor uh, one major competitor in that space um, so it's the, the scale is there but then on the other end of that coin is real living is a relatively small network because 4,000 agents nationwide, about 400 which are in, are, of which are in Massachusetts. Uh, so it's interesting. It's almost like a boutique feel within, uh, you know, of course, under the umbrella of one of the largest uh, global companies that exists. Yeah. So when that changes, when, when it changes hands, do, do you get affected your day-to-day? Is it like... Um here we go again, it's going to be a whole bunch of change in management and stuff, or is it mostly maybe a couple technology changes, but they, they don't, they don't break what's already working. Yeah. I would say over the, over the multiple acquisitions, it would add very little effect on day-to-day business because you know how rare that is. Yeah. (laughs) And I do. And I, I, you know, I do recognize that. And I think that's um, because of my personality. I think that's one of the few things that allows me to, uh, to even be involved in real estate franchises that I probably wouldn't do well with, with direct oversight or control by another, you know, I, uh, not in my nature to, to accept, um, too much guidance, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, so yeah, I, I guess the, to answer your question, it, it was a minimal effect. Although, uh, this most recent, uh, three or four years ago, uh, we wound up with a new CEO, uh, a gentleman named Alan Dalton, who's a former CEO of realtor.com, uh, and an esteemed businessman originally from the Dor- actually from Dorchester, from the Massachusetts area, uh, who's had a transformative effect on, on the brand and the oh, yeah? behind the brand. And it's, it's been a really, uh, positive, uh, in just about every way. So in 2007 or eight, when you're taking over and your dad's ready to step aside or retire or, mm-hmm. or move on to the property management, and the economy's tanking. Um, take back there. I want to talk about that. Like as you're getting into it, so it's probably a, as good a place as any to take the helm, right? Because it's uh, it's a challenge, I'm sure. Sure. So, it's like, a, yeah. And you had seen it go from the thriving market to the boom, right? And then all of a sudden you're, and you were selling at the time. So you, you were aware of how good it was. And then- were you like, holy shit, this is like blowing up? Or did you, did you think it was just going to be a like a bump in the road? Yeah, it was, um, you know, and I think and I, I think back to my age and, and general maturity and business maturity at that time. And, and uh, certainly 04, 05, 06, I thought this is the way that it was. I thought, you know, real estate value has just increased 10% every single year indefinitely. 
Um, I say that partially in jest, but uh, no, but that, I mean, that's, that's the mindset, right? That sometimes it's helpful to be young when the really bad things happen because ample time to recover. And, uh, I think, you know, what you're alluding to is, is the fact that now in retrospect, I, I wouldn't trade that timeline for any other timeline or any other period in history to essentially launch or relaunch a company. Uh, because I learned and cut my teeth in a time where it was really difficult. I mean, the vast majority of brokerages were going out of business. Uh, a lot of the agents in droves. Were, I mean, in droves. Yeah, in droves. And even the agents who uh, a lot of the agents who were successful previously were exiting the industry. So it was a very uh, turbulent time for sure. And uh, interesting to learn the business, um, uh, the way to approach the business in a climate like that. How many? Um how big was the firm when you took over? You said you're about 30 agents now. How, how big right. was it at the time? So I think, I, I believe at the peak, and frankly, I don't have great records, um, but I think at the peak we were at 32 or 33 agents, but transaction volume at that time was around $25 million. Um, you know, prices were a little bit different. That was a little while back. Now we're around the same agent count, but we're, uh, last year we closed out a little over $80 million. So I, I think that the... Um, the productivity or the sales per agent uh, have increased significantly since that time. Do you think that's partly because you had to figure out how to be efficient with the, with the whole crash? You had to figure out how to actually make it work. Sure. Yeah. Efficiency was absolutely key, vital to keeping your doors open. You you had to run lean. Um, You had to provide the same level of service uh, with a lot less compensation. Yeah. I imagine just to get, just to get the, some volume, right? Just to make something happen. Yeah, exactly. Just to, just to be, um, in the black or, or close enough to the black where you can continue to, um, uh, exist. Yeah. Did you, did you bring transmission people through that were working here prior to you taking over and then that stayed here on and continued oh, sure. to be employees? Yeah. What was that like? Um, you know, the more like the change in power. What was it? A change in power sounds ominous, but you know, mm-hmm. taking over, taking the helm, was there opposition? Was there uh, bumps in the road just to get used to? Was there, you know, e- even when you think there wouldn't be, there's always odd little quirks right. because humans are humans, right? And it's not, not even a good or bad, but there's always like, well, there's emotions, quite frankly. That's, sure. that's what it comes down to. So did you, did you have to deal with a lot of that or was it? Yeah, like there, there was, we didn't have too many uh, issues with the transition. The transition was gradual, and I think, uh, I, I presume from the from the agent side, I don't think that it was, um, you know, there, there weren't any major policy changes upon uh, transfer. Um, so, yeah, it was, I, I would say minimal. That being said, 12 years later, I think there are only two agents uh, still affiliated with the company that were at that time, which in part is That's got to be pretty normal, though. I mean, it, it's not it's it, not an industry where you stay in one place for a long time, right? Right. Uh, agents, not for super long, unless right. you own the place. Right. And it, I mean, they, they are independent contractors. All agents are independent contractors. So movement between companies is um, somewhat common. Uh, we've been fortunate in that the majority of agents um, who have joined our company typically stay with our company unless they're exiting the industry. So it's, we've, we've had some that have transitioned to other companies and, and have done well. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, we've always, um, understood that that's certainly a part of the game, so to speak. Um, but comparatively, I think that we, we, we do a good job in, in making sure that, that we strive to be the best place to work for agents. And I think we do a good job of it. Um, what about, so it seems like you've been, connected to the family business since the early part of your career in, in its different phases between helping out with the property management or being a broker here before you took over the business. How, 
Like, how was the business's impact on your life different before? Even though your your dad owned it, there was probably a little bit less riding on you in the beginning. And then as that transitioned, I, that's what I, I want to hear a little bit about how it, how it, how is your life affected by owning the business, especially the real estate business in the in the crash, and then taking it out of it. How did that affect your whole life, as opposed to you know your nine to five? Because it's it's not a nine to five. That's the whole point. Right? No, not even close. Right. <laughs> I don't um, just mean real estate. I mean when yeah. you own the joint, it's not that, nine that, to five. You're absolutely correct. I think that 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 applies to all small to medium sized businesses. The uh, biggest impact was as I was running the company, particularly at that time, I was also acting in the capacity of an agent and I have for the vast majority of my career uh, acted, acted in both capacities. Um, the major transition was over the past year and a half, I've stepped back from doing individual sales. Uh, so it's changed, uh, it's changed a lot of things. Um, my day-to-day function is just different. Um, you know, in terms of finance, it changes things as well. You know, when you're a, a lot of uh, smaller real estate brokerage owners sell real estate because, of course, uh, when a commission is earned, uh, if if you're the one selling it, you're in the lion's share. Sure. Or in some cases, the entirety. And when you're on the other end of that lever, uh, it's the exact opposite. Um, so, it, so that, term, at the point, it really has to be a volume play in order to make. Yeah, the, I mean, the mathematically, you really need work, to yeah. replace your production with four times that, um, or somewhere around that area, but a multiple, a multiple, some multiple. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's been the biggest transition is to go from, uh, from player to coach, I suppose is the best way to say it. What about, what about your work life balance as they call it, you know, owning a business and especially, um, you're, you're now married and, um, you're transitioning into a primarily management role, which I imagine is still not a nine to five, but probably, more resembling a nine to five than it did in Oh nine. Right. It's more so, controllable. Yeah. yeah. It's more yeah. controllable. And what was it? What was it like trying to come back out of the boom? I, I want to talk more about that. What was like, what, what was going through your head? Did you think, well, it's going to always know it's going to work? Yeah. You couldn't it's, have, it's, right? uh, well, that was, that was my underlying assumption. Somehow, some way this was going to work and, and you try to be as strategic as possible, but um, you know, that, positivity, uh, whether misguided or not, that positivity was a necessity. <laughs> it paid off clearly. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it that, it's sometimes you need yeah. that, that false sense of I can do this to actually be a real, I, I did it. <laughs> well, you've got to believe it. If you know, if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. Um, and you know, that sometimes was, was more challenging than other times. And but you had to have days or nights when you were like, man, I could just go do something else. I could just go get a job. Like, what am, what am I doing here? This isn't, this isn't, you know, moving fast enough or it's not paying off or, you know, what if this doesn't get better fast enough? Do you have to, you have to weigh that, right? Especially at the age you were at where it was kind of a transitional point to being a grown up. You do. Yeah. I mean, fortunately I, you know, I was young when I took over the, the management and then ultimately the, the lead position. Um, and I was in my mid twenties. So if I was you know, perhaps later in life with a family and, and more mouths to feed, so to speak, or more responsibility, um, you know, it may have impacted things. I may not have had the, the freedom. I, at that point, I was you know, largely just caring, of course, for our company, but caring for myself financially. So it was, uh, I was more free to take those risks. And I can see how that could be a difficulty uh, with someone who doesn't have that, uh, or is just at a different point in life is the best way to say it. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, it makes sense. And now things are a lot smoother now that you're doing more sales and more efficiency on each of the brokers out there making deals. So it's easier to feed the more mouths or at least be uh, confident that you're going to be able to, you know, much more stability, much more stability. But, you know, I also try to keep the pressure on myself. We we opened the second office last year. We've got additional expansion plans. Uh, I'm not the type that... Complacency isn't for me, although it's something to be guarded against. You do have to be careful when you find a little bit of success. It what? is easy to, to slow down and get comfortable. Yeah, no kidding. And that is poison. Right. That, that'll kill you. Right. Um, what, when you say expanding and all that, what what do you, I mean, not giving out secrets, but what does it mean in this business to, is it just bodies on the street or what, like what's, what's changing in real estate that you can adapt to or you can use as an advantage versus all the realtor.com folks or century 21 or any, anybody else like what, what is there a benefit to being the small firm underneath the uh, umbrella and all, but to being, yeah, this, the, yeah there's maneuverability. Um, and it, you know that what I, what I touched upon earlier was uh, an element of accountability. I think that there can be scaling issues as, as companies grow. And I, you know, I speak with owners of uh, two and three and 400 agent companies, multiple offices. And there is a correct way to do that where you can maintain the, the necessary um, oversight, more importantly, provide the right uh, support for the agent base. And that's got to be done, um, you know, with, frankly, with good managers. Um, so I, I got a little bit lost. On that doesn't matter. Does that, is that of interest to you is building as big a firm as possible? Or no. is it more about kind of where you have it now where it's a niche small family-based business. And I don't mean small in any derogatory. I mean, small in the sense that you can see, you know, the ends of the kingdom, you can manage it. Is that when you say growth, what do you want? Do you want to be the 400 person office or do you want to just grow uh, using efficiency and maintaining sort of a small business stature? I would like to. uh, No wrong answer. No, no, no. I'm just curious. No, that's perfectly fine. It's a great question. I like uh, the opportunity to answer this. I'd like to grow in, in the managed um, way that I'm, I'm talking about. I would like to uh, increase geographically. Uh, currently, we're operating um, throughout most of Massachusetts. We don't go too far west, but we also uh, are licensed in increasing our productivity in uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and New Hampshire. So expanding geography, expanding agent count is, of course, a necessity of that, but doing it correctly. We will not hire agents just to hire agents. Uh, we are not necessarily completely tuned into the scoreboard of, of uh, how many houses that we sell um, growing. And, and I mean, why I do this is to uh, help agents grow their business. There's nothing more gratifying to me than, than when we can bring an agent from a low production or a starting point uh, up to a high producing agent and, and provide a fantastic uh, experience for our clients. It sounds like you want to grow, but grow, grow through purpose and efficiency as opposed to trying to just grow metrics, like trying to just create counts. I would say that's, that's definitely an accurate assessment. Now, when you expand and you go into Rhode Island and Connecticut, does that involve a lot more time in the car for you in the beginning of the expansion? Or is it one of those kind of you hire people that are local to the area? And I guess what I'm driving at, the real question to answer is, how do you feel? You know this market, right? You start from the Worcester market and right. Massachusetts is roughly an extension of Worcester. But as things branch out into different states, and you don't know it like you know it here. 
how do you feel comfortable in the things are going to be run, you know, the Barbera way that's going to be the, a good representation of your business as it goes out there? How do you, how do you right. plan it, for that? It, it all starts with, with selection, selecting the right talent and, and real estate is uh, of course local. The processes and the marketing, there are some things that are uh, applicable uh, to geographies that are more broad than an individual town. Um, but, you know, we have to make sure that we're hiring uh, agents that are, um, comfortable, competent, more than competent that excel uh, in a specific geography that they're going to work in. Yeah. So that starts with that. It starts with hiring the right talent that does have the local knowledge. And what was, um, what was it like when you were working for your dad, you know, having Thanksgiving and things and you, you were both work together, but you also were family together. Did work and family life, I mean, obviously they coexist. Did they ever clash? Was there ever any, anything of tough times there where you're the young guy cutting his teeth and dad was the head honcho? Yeah, not really because of the structure of the company. Um, you know, when I was an agent, I was an agent. I was an independent contractor just like any other agent. Uh, there was only a really brief period of time where we were both in the management capacity. And, and frankly, that didn't uh, didn't work well. Um, it just because it's uh, there are some difficulties. Uh, well, realities. Yeah. And, well, and I, was, I was having a conversation with a, a, a broker that I hired recently who um, was involved, is involved in a, a family run real estate brokerage in south, south of the United States. And we were talking about it just this morning. We were, we were together and, uh, you know, we were sort of recounting experiences and he had uh, brothers that he was involved in business with as well. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion uh, loaded with family and it's... It, well, yeah, it comes along for the ride. I mean, yeah. it's, it's part of the package. Without without question. But to, really to, to answer your question, um, it never really had a negative impact uh, but I think we both recognized pretty quickly that, uh, A, just the element of redundancy and having two people in the same position, essentially, um, but B, it's uh, th th some difficulty there. I understand that some, uh, you know, there are many companies that are multi-generational and, and, and run fine there, but I, you know, I can certainly attest to some challenges involved in that too. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're always going to be like my father works with me and it's a great relationship is as close to perfect as you could have it. But there's days we grind each other's uh, gears. You know, there's days that you, you get on each other's nerves and you can get on your father or your son's nerves more than you can Jerry down the hall. Cause Jerry is an employee that, but that's what Jerry is as opposed to dad is dad and either an employee or a boss or whatever. So there is, you know, there's a certain level of reality of the fabric that comes with that relationship. You can't, you can't pretend it's not there. I, I see it and it's funny because I've been through it. You go through it. And uh, I, I know some other folks who have family businesses and you can always watch the dynamic as the, as the people try to figure out, even if it's been years, how to, how to have the relationship, right? Do I call dad, dad? Do I call dad by his name when I'm at work, which I always find is weird when, the, but I mean, to each their own, nothing against it. But when someone, when I know you're talking about your dad and you're calling him by his name, I'm like, Isn't, are we talking about your dad still? Cause I'm, I'm getting a little confused. And, and, but that stuff's, it sounds so petty and so little, but that's real. And if that's, if that's on your mind when you're having the conversations, then clearly it's part of the fabric of the company, right? It's, it's a reality that's there. So it, I always find it interesting how different people deal, deal with it differently. What's it like now that you're the boss of the company that he started He's and he's out of it? Does he, you know, ask you how's, how's business and what's new and, or does he basically he hung his hat and he doesn't, he's not that interested anymore. Yeah. We discuss in general terms and then we, we still have um, uh, some connection through the property management company too. 
Um, I don't have a day-to-day operation uh, or function there, I should say. Uh, but I, I um, there was a point, maybe five, I think it was about five years ago, my father actually was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Oh, my, I didn't know yeah. that. And he's, uh, let me head off, head off the typical presumption. He's, he's in fantastic health. Uh, he's been one of the very, very fortunate people who's been cancer-free since. Uh, That's since amazing. That's awesome. It, 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 a testament to his, his will and strength. And, uh, and to the doctors and, and to everybody in that party. That's and, awful. But, yeah. I mean, Without you question. can't get a better story. With, with, with uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was, of course, a trying time for all the normal reasons that it would Jesus, be a trying time yeah. for family. Uh, but at that time, he had the property management company, and, and it was a uh, uh, very lean company. It was, it was frankly, him, and then he, he subcontracted for uh, a lot of the maintenance functions, and he was down and out. He, of course, couldn't work. So at that time, uh, I found myself now running two companies yeah. that I hadn't planned or anticipated doing. Um, so I became very involved in that and reorganized a lot of the things in, in a complete vacuum. Uh, where you know he was he wasn't that he was that bigger yeah 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 he, he, he doesn't need to know about the Monday morning status exactly. so that's not that's not on the radar exactly so we were we were successful in, in getting that to a place where uh, it was uh, it, it is now um, and so I, I still have some involvement in that because of of um, of legacy uh, legacy and, and and frankly just having to having to step up and do it. And yeah. That, that was an interesting one. Well, that yeah. is interesting. Let's talk yeah. more about that. I mean, sure. because having to step up and I imagine that because you own the business here and the way that you operate it, where, you know, you, you don't have to be here nine to five. It, that was enabling. You were, you were, it might've been harder to step up if you were punching a clock and you were in, in somewhere else, you know, working for someone else nine to five, it might've been harder to step Impossible. up and help your dad out. In which case then he's going to suffer even greater, right? Cause he, at that point he can't do anything with the business. No, that's, that's one of the saddest stories when people do get sick is right. they have no resources. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I had worked a nine to five job, if that was my, you know, if I had a, hate to say regular, typical, just regular, regular yeah. yeah, regular job. Uh, there's no way that I would have been able to, to do both. And, they, and they're somewhat complementary, but really autonomous businesses. There's no overlap between the two. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're the same in that they involve places people live, it, that, that's but, exactly, but it's that's, not the same business. The extent one is, yeah. one is selling them and yeah. one is managing yeah. the, the use of them. So that's vastly different. That, that had to be a, a big period of growth for you and probably for your dad too, especially now that his health came back. I mean, does he, he's got to view things differently, the world. I mean, just everything, because you, when you get that news, yeah, you think it's going one way and for him it didn't. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. The, the, you know, the curious him? part about it is that I don't think he ever was thinking that it was going to go that way. It's kind of like you with and the it, market crashing. Yeah. It it's almost a, uh, yeah, a willful uh, naivety <laughs> or ignorance. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I honestly think, and I think that was uh, a major component and, and, you know, my father is not the most uh, technologically advanced uh, or technologically interested person, I should say. So he wasn't one to Google the statistics. Uh, you know, my, my sister, my mother, and I, we all knew that, you know, we were looking at a 5% survival rate. Yeah. Uh, he had no idea. After the surgery was complete and he was declared cancer-free, the doctor mentioned it, and he was flabbergasted. Wow. You know, I, don't th- I don't think that he, um, he was aware, wanted to be made aware. He just, he, was, he viewed it as uh, a temporary inconvenience. Uh, Jesus. We dealt with I'm, I'm really glad it worked out the way that it did. But so sure. when I asked you 20 minutes ago about yeah. how the business affects you, you know, at home and in your personal life, this is what I'm talking about. When something like this happens and you have to step up and you have to run this other business, this one's still got to keep going, right? Sure. And then your personal life, we're talking about your dad, not, not just like a natural disaster that you're stepping up to help for. So then you've got to be scared out of your mind you know, emotions going crazy. 
I don't even know where to begin with like what what's going through your head just is it trying to at that point like when you're running the two of them and and you're scared about your dad what's it like are you trying to figure out what the end is you're trying to figure out what the businesses should do or is it a like a wake up and try to get through this day to get to start again tomorrow. It's, I mean, it's got to feel like you're in the middle of a tornado, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was an element element of a, a kind of an involuntary adaptation where it was just, this is what my work day is now. And, and we were fortunate in that we were I was able to grow, uh, you know, both companies actually grew during that time too. It wasn't as though uh, the necessary work at the property management company took away from uh, what we're doing with the brokerage. Uh, the brokerage actually had, had some of its best growth years during that time. I don't, you know, if you ask me to, to recount exactly how it all went down, I probably couldn't tell you. Yeah, I it's bet. Probably some I, element I, of compartmentalization and, uh, you know, you just, you just do, you know, they, when you're put in those situations and your family's comfort and livelihood and everything is at stake, you just do. Do you think that taking on the other company and basically doubling your, I mean, if it was double, but having a lot more workload, do you think it was helpful in getting through it? Because you kind of to some degree had to put your head down and grind and that kind of took you out of the fear. I mean, I don't, I'm just guessing. I don't Everything's know. Everything's easy once you've already done it. And that's, that's a way that I look at it, right? It's, um, I probably wouldn't have volunteered myself to be under that level of strain. Um, it was tough. It yeah. was tough. It was all encompassing. And, and, and that I'm just talking, I'm, I'm speaking strictly about the business component of it being tough. And then you, you add that with the, the emotional component. And I'm, I'm fortunate in that our, our family is extremely strong. My sister, my mother, uh, my wife, Caitlin, were, were all by my side at that time. Um, taking care of, you know, a lot of the things outside of the picking business. Picking up slack. Just as important. I, you yeah. know, those, I couldn't have done the business components without having the support on the other end of it. So I put it all into one big ball and that's this, you know, what needed to be done was done. Well, when you own the business, it, it's all related. You know, it, it, you can't, there's only a degree to which you can separate the business from home life, from right. marriage and sisters and brothers and grandparents. And it's all related because it's part of what you do. It's part of your life. It, it, well, I guess that there's no, there's no blanket answer. So it's not the same for everybody, but most people I talk to that own a business, they are in it and that it, I don't want consumes is the wrong word, but it, it, it's the fire that keeps them going. There's something about it that, that they love. And, and so it's connected deeper than a lot of folks who don't like their jobs, which right. is, which is an unfortunate right. reality for a lot of people. They, they don't like what they do. They, they, or they hate their job, but they just do it because they, they need to, or they don't want to go figure something else out. And I, I think that, you know, those people take stuff home too, but it's a different relationship because when you own the place here, if you're taking home, hate and stress and everything every night, then shame on you. You own the place, change it. Right. right. <laughs> so, but right. it doesn't mean you're not going to take home stress. And you're not going to take home anxiety once in a while, but you're also taking home pride. You're taking home, uh, just the desire to do more. The, you know, it's a lot easier to crack the laptop at eight after you put the kids to bed and work on something that you care about than work on something that your boss is expecting in the morning. There's a big difference. Absolutely. And, um, I know we touched a little bit on work-life balance and, and, and there's a lot that you can improve there too. And I think earlier in my career, um, 
I was really bad at separating the two. You and me both. Yeah, and it's it's not an uncommon uh, thing among amongst uh, business owners. I know that it's very common. And when I say business owners, I mean I, our our real estate agents are business owners too. So everybody who works under this umbrella. I agree. That's you know, the purpose of this show. Exactly. I don't I don't care if it's a one man show to a yeah. uh, Fortune five hundred company. It's it, right. I just like talking to people who have you know done it and and getting a perspective on what it took to make a business. doesn't matter what the business is. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I try to help our agents with is, is how to draw that line. Like personally, I, I don't really work at home. You know, when I go home at the end of the day, that's I'll, I'll always take calls from agents uh, if they need support. Um, you know, after hours, of course that happens from time to time, but barring that, if I need to make more than a phone call, I'll drive to the office and I'll do that because this is my workplace and that's my home place. And it took me quite a while to learn that as an adaptation uh, and it's, it's not the same for everyone. I know a lot of, a lot of people that are very successful, whether it's a, uh, you know, corner of the basement that's deemed the home office or, or, or whatever. But, uh, for a long period of time, I just mixed the two all of the time and, uh, it made it very difficult to disconnect when the disconnection was necessary. And at times it is. Yeah, it is. And, but and, uh, your point I think is a good one that there's no right or wrong. It's how it works for you. And you have to figure out how to make it work for you because the, it's a different answer for everybody. And there's no, you know, there's no do this and it works. For some people, it's don't bring it home. For right. some people, they bring it home. For some people, it's a blend. You know, for some people, they have the corner in the basement where they can go dedicate and then they can walk away. It's and for some people, it's just woven into their life. It's just it's a it's an ebb and a flow. It just depends. I think that's one of the biggest things, the biggest takeaways, especially of all these conversations that I get to have with, uh, with people that own businesses is none of them are the same, right? There's a huge amount of difference in what makes it work, how much struggle it took, how much struggles yet to come, how, you know, I already talked to one guy that's already done. He built a business, sold a business, you know, he had the American dream, mm -hmm. which was really fun to talk about because of course on paper, he's got the American dream, but then there's all the reality for the 20 or 30 years that he owned the business. That was really great conversation because there was a lot more to it than, than build business, sell business. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. And you're right. There's, there are so many different paths that you can take. And, um, you know, you talked about finding what works and, and to me, you, you find out what works by a process of elimination, frankly, by first finding out what doesn't work. Yeah, usually yeah, I screw up the, first. <laughs> those are the stronger signals, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, what works also changes. You know, sure. like I've had my business for 20 years now, and what worked 20 years ago was not what was working to, or or not working 10 years ago, which is not what's working or not working now. It's a, it's always it's always changing, and it changes um, by the state of life that you're in. You know, when I started the business, I was – in college basically. And then eventually, you know, I get married and have kids and that those are very different phases, very different priorities. And then not to mention, I'm a lot older than I was then, you know, I have a different wants out of life. Uh, and it's nice. I think part of what I love is the freedom to adapt. You know, what's always really made me love having my own business. And I've, I've always had the one and then I've had a bunch of others along the way. And what, what keeps me interested is a, classic ADD and I can't just do the same thing all the time where I, I go out of my mind. I'm, I'm not strong enough for that, but I like the freedom to change what I do. In other words, like my, my same company is the same company that it was 20 years ago, but we don't, we do totally different things. It's like, it's a different place. I just operate under the umbrella that it's in the same space, but it's totally different. And it gets, you know, reborn as, as technologies come about or life changes or adapting to being a dad with two kids, who's going to be at 
all the practices and because that's what's important to me. So I shape my life around the time. You know, I, I view time as part of my, the one, a big part of my compensation from the business is the fact that I can do what I want when I want to a degree, you know, the clients are always the boss, but it, but to a degree, I'm, I'm the guy that's always at practice, the guy that's always on the slopes with the kids, the guy that's doing stuff with them. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Cause to me, that's my number one goal is that that's my first job as dad. Mm-hmm. And this business allows me to do that where if I had a typical nine to five or, and I, you know, I'm not that experienced with nine to fives, but I did have some of them before, before this, um, even one after college where I was still doing this, but this was like a, a part-time thing at the time. It was right after college and it, it, I, I just couldn't adapt to it. I couldn't adapt to the, to the captivity, I guess <laughs> is, is, is the way to put it. And it killed me. But it, so do you see that with, with the company here? Like it's a different animal than it was before you were married and wanting to go home at five o'clock or um, because like you mentioned, you were younger Sure. And and more of a bulldozer, and you know, not worrying about work life balance. So, what changes here? Yeah, there's definitely more adaptability when you can control your function. You know, we we try to control uh, the total number of hours that we put into it. But even if I can change um, when those hours are, what days they fall on, and things, then it does allow for more flexibility with family. Um, and that part's important. And I, I love the way that you just. Uh, sort of describe that it's you know what's your wealth you know your your wealth changes right when you're 100 25 30 it was all about the ferrari or mm-hmm. whatever yep now going to the kids soccer practice or, or being on the ski slopes or, or that's your wealth and it's just this sort of age-old premise of trading time for money yep and um i think yeah that's ultimately what we're all doing it, trading time it, for that, money that's all it comes down to and then eventually you're trading money for time mm-hmm. trying to buy back your time and uh, at the ripe old age of, of 35, I'm um, assigning more importance to the, the time factor. And it's I, about I, when it starts, I think. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, obviously this family um, uh, changes in family and things that impact it. Um, but it's it's important to recognize that. And that's, that is one of the primary benefits. And it, it's not to say that you, that if you're a business owner, you'll have... You can just cancel work on Wednesday if you don't want to go to work Wednesday because you've got some uh, family obligation. No, you want to do. no, it's, it's not, it's, it's it not about just not working. Yeah. It's, but it's about adaptability at work. Exactly, in, in totality, and it may be trading compensation for that time, um, but you've got that option. You know, you, you're able to kind of set your rules to some extent, but know that the outcome is going to be dependent ultimately about the quality and the, the amount of, of output mm-hmm. work that you put into it. And what about you? Do you have other aspirations? Do you want to do other things or is that not even on the radar yet? You're head down in this and growing efficiency and keeping this business growing and growing within the business world or within the world world? general. Okay. Uh, in the business, I, I you know, it, that's one trap that I think I may have fallen into uh, at some point earlier in my career was I wanted to do five different things. Um, at this point, I really am trying to stay narrow and deep in, in the real estate brokerage business. This is what I've uh, accumulated most of my experience in. And um, I think that I can have the most impact in staying focused on this. Uh, you know, there are offshoots. There's, of course, the, the property management component. There's uh, the development world. Um, a lot of things that have to do with real estate. But I, my, the majority of my time is focused on making sure that this business uh, grows uh, in the measured way that we had, we had talked about. That's good. So it lights your fire to get interested in, right. in doing it. Right. And That's it's important. fun. And, it's, and, and we talk about transformative. I mean, my, 
my client is different now than it was three years ago. My client is now the the agent uh, in, in helping that agent. Yeah, grow yeah, and, yeah. That's that's got to be a difference. Into, yeah. So because a lot of what when, we, when we're talking about time and t- getting your time taken up, a lot of what probably takes up a real estate agent's time, I would imagine, is a lot of phone calls. And probably there's a lot of, a lot of research and a lot of phone calls because everybody that you're representing calls you whenever they want, right? Right. And you have to kind of be available or else someone else will be. Yeah. I mean, is, is that, that's got to be a I mean, pressure. And the, Yeah. And there's two, I mean, the two components to what defines uh, a successful real estate agent and it's the balance of skill and service. And service oftentimes is quantified by your ability to get back to the client uh, very, very quickly. And that's essentially important. We're dealing with a very emotionally loaded transaction. Yeah. You know, us outside of the medical field, there aren't too many other uh, things that people are involved in that, that they assign this level of emotion to, particularly in the residential world where, you know, the, the family home is, is, is just loaded. And so we oftentimes we're dealing with, uh, you know, situations that may arise from a, you know, a divorce or a death and that, that can be part of it, or it could be all on the positive side, you know, the first time yeah. home buyer's first home. But the point that I'm making with it is it's an emotionally loaded time. And because of that, when somebody needs to talk, sometimes they need to talk, they yeah. need to talk immediately and you're not going to get your attorney on the phone at 9.30 p.m. Uh, nope. In most cases. Well, yeah, it depends who you are, but we're not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, it, you know, the, being available is very, very important. So that falls under the service realm. And then that falls the, under work-life balance, too, though, because oh, sure. when people are buying a home, they probably work, which means they want to talk about the house nights and weekends. And there's an inverse relationship, of course. Yeah. So great time to talk about this. We're going into a week next week where we've got the Christmas holiday in the middle of the week. And the following week, we've got January 1st. So we've got two quasi-holiday weeks. Yeah. And uh, particularly, uh, you know, independent professionals or independent contractors, they're setting their own hours. You know, there's not a real specific, I, I don't know which days next week every attorney is going to be in the office or not in the office. Um, but the client knows that they can call us uh, with few exceptions and just about any time. Do you, um, so on that work-life balance and the, you know, starting to try to figure out how to manage your time, do you think that is a difference? I want to go back to talking about the difference with Barbera. And mm-hmm. you said one of it is the management of people and coaching. You coaching help people. Right. So is that is that something that's different, you think, that you do that maybe the bigger firms, the more transactional firms don't do is coaching agents on how to set their own boundaries and have a personal life so that they can maintain that sort of happiness with taking phone calls when they do? It, 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 you alluded to it. You talked about coaching people sure. about, you know, going home and having it be home and, and that sort of stuff, even if they work from home, maybe a different space. Is that, that you, you mentioned that you do that. Is that something that you think is important and does that fall under the Barbera difference, so to speak? Is that one of those things yes. that you think you do differently? And, it, and what is it like in a normal office? It's, it's extremely important. And in, in setting boundaries is the terminology that you used and there's definitely a, a component of that. Um, but in order for agents to perform at a high level, um, and be sustainable for that for that practice to be sustainable, they have to uh, be able to draw boundaries and, and set work hours and, and non work hours. And I know that it may sound a little confusing with my previous statement about being available available, and it's that balance that you have to find. Well, it, it is confusing. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be confusing. That yeah. that's one of those fun parts, right? Sure. 
Sure. And it, 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 it is fine. Each agent is going, going to find their own balance. And I've, you know, I've got agents that like to start their work day very early and, and agents that tend to work later into the evening and everything sure. in between. Uh, so finding that balance and then, and then clearly communicating that to the client so that those, those boundaries are understood and that the, the client has a good expectation of when uh, you're available to be reached um, is, is it's extremely important. It really is. Ultimately it's for you, you're concerned with them being high performers, right? Which means having a healthy relationship to the job, because if you get burned out, then you're not going to be any good to themselves or to you. So is it, it's part of encouraging the work-life balance to end up getting more out of the people? Because I don't know, for me as a business owner, outcome is all that matters. Right. I don't care how early you get here or how late you stay. I only care that you do a good job and you do it well. And I don't have to grind you to get the good job. Yep. That, I don't, I don't, and, but I think that's different than the, the way things used to be. I think, well, in a lot of ways it still is in, in corporate America, you, a lot of your job is presence and sure. it's showing up early and it's staying late. And I think that's changing a lot, you know, especially with people being able to telecommute that's changing in, in general industries. But I still think there's a huge component of being seen and I don't find value in that. Right. I think it's, I think it, there is, it's ingrained in our culture and I think it comes from a good place. Right. You know, I used to tell yeah, hard fact, work in place. Exactly. Exactly. I used to tout the fact how many hours I worked in a week. And now I, I look back at that and I say, you know, how many of those hours were uh, things that I needed to be doing? Right. Or, or, you know, when I found ways to make my time more efficient. So now you're absolutely right. That outcome is what it's, what is essential. I mean, my, my, saying for is above all be effective. Right? Yeah. What's the effect of your work and the way that we measure outcome, the way that I measure outcome from the, the company standpoint is client experience. You know, I don't really, it's not of tremendous import to me whether uh, an agent closes 20 deals or 10 deals. Uh, if I have t at the end of the year, if that agent that closed 10 deals has 10 thrilled clients that appreciated the experience uh, and, you know, were able to, to, to meet their goals and, and, and and have a good experience through it. That's much more important to me than an agent who closes 20, 30 or 50 deals where, you know, half of them are happy and half of them aren't client experience is 110% of it. Well, I imagine a lot of your business comes from people that have had a good experience and then either they call you again when it comes time to buy or sell, or they tell their friends and their friends give you a call, right? I mean, that's, that's still got to be the primary driver for your industry. 80%. So for, for our, our top performing agents, it's 80% repeat and referral business. And that's what we all strive toward. Uh, that is how we build our manage, our, our uh, prospecting training programs too. Uh, you, of course, you have to introduce, our agents have to introduce themselves to new buyers. You have to have, in order to have repeat clients, you have to have clients. So of course, there is a component of um, reaching new clientele, but we are a service-oriented company our, that's deeply ingrained in our ethos, and that's one thing that we reinforce uh, over and over again is that you've got to provide excellent service coupled with excellent skill. Uh, you know, the skill component is something that sometimes is overlooked. You know, in the absence of skill, sometimes service masks that, but we also want to assure that our agents are spending su sufficient time and I give them opportunity to increase their skills. Uh, because like we had talked about at the beginning, there are a lot of real estate agents out there that are doing one, two, three transactions uh, a year. They're doing it as a hobby. Nothing against uh, those people that, you know, some of them can do a very fine job of it. Um, but the vast majority. Right, but a dentist that does three fillings a year, do you want to go there for your next filling? Exactly. The, it's the analogy I usually use a surgeon, but uh, right along the same lines, you know, if, if my knee is hurt, I want to go to the surgeon that did 
30 knee surgeries last year, not the one who, I, I don't want the best brain surgeon. I want the, the most busy knee surgeon, yeah. the specialist, the person who knows uh, what to look out for, how to avoid things, uh, how to deal with things when they do go wrong in the process. Mm-hmm. That's what's vitally important. Yeah, it is. It, that That is what it comes down to. Sure. What else? Um, I know what I wanted to ask you. After you took over the business, so you go from outside to inside, even though it's pretty transparent because it was your dad, but is there anything that struck you or caught you off guard for running the business that you didn't expect or you didn't see going into it? Like, let's say once you get, once you take over, you start the relationship with real living. And so it's kind of new from the way your father's business was run, right? And sure. you're, you're on this new path. Was there any aha moments or things that caught you, like lessons that you think back on, things you didn't see? Math. Math. That sucks. It, it, it's, it's just, I, you know, it, I didn't understand the importance of, of understanding the numbers and, and really, you know, diving into the numbers and monitoring them frequently and closely. Um, that was probably the most uh, biggest epiphany I had. It sounds almost silly saying it now, but uh, constant monitoring of, of what your status markers are and, and where you are. Uh, is, health. Yeah. Instead, and, and doing it proactively and not retroactively, you know, that was a lesson that even came later. You know, once I understood that, okay, we've got to watch this part of it, but now being able to make adjustments um, prior to uh, you know, running into things that you couldn't ignore, I guess. Yeah. So uh, last thing I want to ask about is as far as growth, right. And growth issues, what, what is in the way of growing? You, you said it's hiring the right people and it's bodies. But as an industry, I want to like more, more like macro level. What's, what's in the way of growing? Is there, is there a, is it the market and just so many houses to sell or is that still getting better and better now? And like, what, what is it? But yeah, the, the market is not stifling anything. It's, um, tech, I hate to use just the word technology, but the, the brokerage model is changing drastically. That's what I want to hear about because okay. it's totally outside of my, Sure. Realm of understanding. Sure. So, you know, th- this is, it's probably symptomatic of the broader problem of, of too many agents with not enough training, but the reality is that there's major uh, compression of commission. Uh, so there's a uh, public sentiment undervalues uh, real estate agents. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame the public for undervaluing real estate agents because if you average out the skill level of all real estate agents, then I, the would, low. I would say that we are overvalued without question. However, when you isolate the top professionals from the, the professionals who haven't, have not invested the time or just haven't had the right guidance, uh, then I, you know, I, those top professionals, I think are an absolute bargain. I think that if, if the, for sure, the top agents, and that, that, that goes have, across different industries too, especially service related. It does, industries. But if you look at, you know, compare us to attorneys who, to a bill by the hour, but you know, if you go to a, hundred dollar an hour attorney, if that exists, uh, and a $700 an hour attorney, you're going to have a major and recognizable difference with real estate agents. By and large, the same amount is, is charged with, with, you know, a little bit of uh, variation and you could be getting someone who is brand new, just out of class, hasn't even been through a transaction or someone who is the best real estate. A thousand transactions under their belt. It's it's unreal. I mean, the, the, the the variation in in the skill level uh, that you could be exposed to at the same cost is uh, somewhat unique to the industry. So to, and and to extrapolate that there are entire brokerages and and companies that are emerging at this point um, that are just trying to compress the commission. They're trying to be the cheapest player and they're, they're not hiring uh, the best talent. They're not training and supporting the best talent. They can't, the the math does not make sense. Um, So like I said, at the beginning, we've sort of got a PR problem in this industry where 
you know, the consumer feels that they should pay less, but they don't recognize the, the variation, the different levels of service they, they can get with competing uh, real estate agents. And so it's sort of a consumer education challenge. It is, it is. And it's, it's a really, it's a hard uh, lesson to, to demonstrate. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you properly put forth the value that, that you bring to the table and, and, you know, realize that saving a half a point or a point on commission could very well cost you five, 10, 15, 20 points on the percentage of the sale price of your home, or even worse, wind up in a lawsuit. It's a, it's a difficult proposition to, to explain correctly. I would say you got to take the commission thing out of it. I mean, like you said, there's, there's a very small difference if you're changing a point or a half a point as opposed to a hundred dollar versus seven dollar attorney. Right. The, the difference in the consumer education, it seems like a challenge when I'm looking at you from the outside is what you really need to do is have that person understand what, what you bring to the table versus what someone who might be fresh out of school or, or, or doesn't really put their, it's a part-time gig or they've only sold a couple of houses. What, what the difference in that experience is going to be, but you have to do that education before you know the person. That's it's, it's a big message to get out uh, prior to having the conversation. If I never get the opportunity to sit across from the table uh, across the table from you and explain what it is that we do and why it's different, uh, it's really difficult to put that into a marketing piece. Yeah, how do you do that? Because I've never seen that from any real estate firm. That's why repeat and referral business is so, so such a key element. Uh, when you know, I can only get so many words out to you in whatever media possible uh, before you make your decision. However, if I come highly recommended from a friend or a family member or someone who's actually completed a transaction uh, with one of our, you know, one of our agents, um, then that, that sentiment is, is so much uh, more reinforced, I guess yeah. is the best way to say it. Yeah. I can see that for sure. But like with most industries, I don't know if it's going to be affected by technology as much yours, where there's going to, I mean, there's been a lot of platforms around in real estate, but mostly around rental and, you know, like Airbnbs and that sort of thing. But I'm sure there's someone's going to be trying to figure out how to replace the use, the humans, with a with a virtual transaction to, oh, that's to, to that's, buy houses. That's in play right now. It's in play, but it's not, like, sweeping the market yet. Right. So, uh, so. Purple Bricks is one of the largest, excuse me, the largest iBuyer programs. A uh, lot of discussion, of course, about Zillow, um, who's got tremendous, who's gained tremendous market share and is now licensing and has been uh, licensing themselves in states. And uh, and essentially, that's that's the big question, right? This is a discussion that I have with my agents frequently is, is are we replaceable? Right. And if we think that we're replaceable, then we are. Right. <laughs> you know, if we don't, if we don't recognize the value, if we think that an algorithm can replace the skill component uh, of what a real estate agent brings to the table, then, then you probably should step out of the business if you don't feel firmly that we bring something of tremendous value. Right. And then if you're willing to figure out how to communicate that, because it, there's no question that some will be uh, replaced with technology. Without question. Like it, in virtually any industry. Sure. But that doesn't mean all like in virtually any industry and the top performers and the people that can make a differentiate. There's, there's still going to be people who want to walk through a new home with someone who can show them the ins and the outs and help them understand the um, inspection. And you know, there's, there's, there's value in, in the job that you do, but how do you explain that to people who don't already know that? I think that's, I'm just talking here, but that's to me, that's your challenge, especially as it gets harder and harder to be an agent or to differentiate yourselves is before you've ever sat at the table and talked to them about it is how do you figure out how to get that education out? Sure. And, and consumers have, there's a, there's a, 
you know, this has been replicated in other industries before. And I, I, a couple of analogies that I use are WebMD. When WebMD first came out, was, you know, was there a serious thought that doctors would be replaced? No. I mean, if you've got a sniffle, if you've got a small problem, you might look on WebMD, get information. Find out you're dying. Exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> but ex- exactly, right? That's, that's the, uh, that, well, that's, that's the, that is a, uh, indicative of how cheap data is. Right. Um, versus skill. Um, but, you know, so if you've got the sniffle, you may rely on WebMD. Uh, if you find a lump somewhere that you think is somewhere, you're calling your doctor. You don't care what the doctor costs. You're going to hire the best doctor you can find because it's that important. Uh, same thing with a legal issue. If you need to draft a will, you know, maybe you go to LegalZoom right. and, and get the will. Uh, if you're uh, in handcuffs or get served with a, uh, a lawsuit or something along you're those lines. You're not going to LegalZoom. No, you're going to go to the best <laughs> attorney that you can find. So the point is, uh, you, like you, you touched upon it and, and you explained it well, um, at the top level of performance, it may actually get easier as technology replaces the hobbyist agent, the agent that uh, has not dedicated the time and energy to, to become very, very good at, at the business. You know, as those ones are, are purged, then it may be easier and may, perhaps we, our PR problem will be reduced. Well, I think it'll probably get easier for those who are prepared for it, for those who are ready to communicate the value and be, be the difference. You know what I mean? Like um, higher ed has been majorly disrupted in, in a similar fashion where there's... It's, it's predicted like half of all colleges will be closed in like 10 years because of online education and, and the newer trend where everyone doesn't have to go to college, which there's a lot of merit to that. You know, it's, sure. it's, there's perfect sense to that where they were kind of gliding along for a long time, the colleges, because everyone could get the money easily, get into the college. And there was this societal thing where you had to go regardless of what you're going to do. And that's kind of waning. Anyway, I digress. Point is, the schools that communicate their value aren't Harvard's not going anywhere. They're not going to be part of the schools that close, but a lot of the other schools that are just selling classes are going to go by the wayside. And that's probably a parallel with you. You know, the realtors who are just selling houses will probably fall prey to purple bricks. I don't even know what that is, but you know that, or, or the next iteration or Zillow, but then the agents who can find a way to communicate and maybe it's like a teaming up with other realtors and just having a, I think they've tried it like with some of the bigger firms, but they were too cheesy or too like commercialized, but having messaging that goes out that basically is educating on the why and why, like what does it mean to have you in the corner with a big, this big transaction where you're going to live with your family and all of that, as opposed to trying to shave off half a point and having an algorithm find you the right house. Right. Like you said, it, it, it boils down to value. You've got, to, you've got to actually provide something of value. And the housing or real estate transaction is a transaction that's complicated enough that just hiring uh, someone who, who does them day in and day out, you know, hiring the surgeon that does 30 knee surgeries, uh, the ability for them to foresee potential issues and, and evade potential issues that have massive implications. That's the crux of the value. That's a skill category. It's not just a service category and it's not just data. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to bring this back maybe 20, 25, uh, actually probably closer to 30 years ago now, 25, I think, um, the way that consumers were made aware of property that was for sale was in these bound books that were drop it, dropped at real estate companies, front doors every two to four weeks. So if you wanted to find out what was for sale, you had to go to the real estate agent because they controlled the data. Uh, we lost control of that data. We gave control of that data away 
many years ago through the internet, through what we call ideas. There's no way you were keeping control of that data. And, and, and we shouldn't. That should not be a value proposition. As long as our value proposition is control of data, we don't have value. Right. So that that toothpaste is out of the tube, right? That's never going to go back. So there, there was a transition. A lot of agents that uh, would fault, you know, this is, I guess, Zillow was probably the biggest, um, uh, the most effective and fastest growing version of this data giver. Um but now that, that that part is done, we've got to not focus on, on data. So it's not about having the information. It's not about just being the one to pick up your phone. At this point, if you're going to survive in this business, if you're not, not if you're going to survive, if you're going to thrive in this business, you've got to develop skills. Just like the best litigation attorneys have skills, just like the best physicians have skills, that's where real estate agents need to focus. And, and I still think that that insulates us from any technological advancement if you really want to extrapolate out and, and, and try to predict what artificial intelligence or AI will be in five, 10 or 15 years, does that like eventually those, like those, uh, Boston dynamic dogs start selling houses. You can't compete. With those <laughs> <laughs> they can open doors now. Uh, well, it, you know, that, that would be the only, uh, you know, we, we, if we're going to have that conversation about the ability for AI to, uh, replace, uh, you know, what point does AI replace physicians? At what point is they is better at surgery? Well, they probably will be yeah. uh, for certain types of surgery. But like yeah. you said, though, like, of course, we're so limited and you and I are probably, I don't know how maybe you are. I'm not qualified to talk about AI. I'm not smart enough to talk about what's going to be happening with artificial intelligence. But I think even a dummy like me can see that they will for sure be better at surgeries than surgeons. Right. On one side of the coin because they they won't have a hand that might tremble they won't you know they won't have any of the inherent um, flaws of a human mm -hmm. but and I could be this is where I could be wrong but I struggle to see where when when shit goes wrong that human surgeon is going to be able to adapt to whatever goes wrong where AI I, it, this is where my understanding might be lacking but AI is going to be limited to what it can understand, not processing in real time. Right. Supposedly it'd be able to process in real time and better, but I just don't know that I believe that. You know, like, I don't know that it's going to be able to react to something going wrong or finding, like, it would know that when you're doing this surgery, sometimes you accidentally cut this vein and you have to close it up. But it wouldn't know about when the fluorescent light in the ceiling breaks during a surgery right. and a piece of glass falls down on the person. What do you do now? Like, right. that's where I want the human surgeon. Yeah, it's it's not programmed uh, for that, right? And then, again, I, I've got a probably equal level of uh, knowledge regarding AI, and it's uh, pretty much restricted to what I've heard on interesting podcasts. Yeah, but uh, and and I mean, I you know, I come using this uh, sort of drama to to make a point that um, the prospect of being replaced completely by technology, I don't think. I think it. I think it is a viable and and a, and a, a should be a fear of those that haven't developed skills, but. Um, you know, if, if, if you're allocating the right amount of energy and resources to, to doing this business or any business, frankly, um, it'll, it'll be transformed. It'll continue to be transformed. It has been, uh, significantly over the past 10 or 15 years, but, uh, this, this I think there's always still a space for, for good spill, uh, you know, skilled real estate agents. What are some of the skills that you're looking for in a, in a, to, for a real estate agent to be like, you know, able to work here? What are the skills when you're differentiating. Sure. So, I mean, maximi maximizing upside, of course, when you're representing the seller of a home, you want to, the 
most important thing to do is to, well, A, to, to figure out what the seller's motivations are because it's not always just a matter of price point, but listening to the client, figuring out what the client's uh, primary motivators are. Sometimes it's speed of a sale. Sometimes it's the, oftentimes it's the uh, maximizing the achievable sale price. Um, these are you know, two major components that, uh, that require a level of ex- transactional experience. Uh, marketing, of course, is, is a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part of the skill, primarily on the seller side. Um, those are the three that I would really characterize. And people skills, right? I mean, the people, fact that emotional the, the intelligence. People, yeah, holding a conversation and, yeah. and taking it forward in a way that you can have a beneficial relationship has got to be huge. Right. It's a people, I mean, people skills are paramount and everyone doesn't have this industry. No, a lot of people don't. And, and, and they, like every other skill can be learned and, and grown. You know, I, I, when I think of the eclectic mix of people we've got here, I've got agents from 25 to 73 years old and from every different uh, cultural background and uh, education, dramatically different from Ivy, from Ivy League graduates to uh, the, those without uh, college educations. And they've all developed these uh, emotional skills and, and people skills and, and they're constantly trying to improve all these different things. It's, uh, it varies. It varies wildly. It's kind of fun though, right? It's kind of fun to it's watch a, it and figure out how it's all going to work yeah. and, and, and then look back in five years and think how wrong you were, and, <laughs> but you adapted and figured out how to actually stitch it all together along the way. That's why I love memorializing these things in a podcast so that I can look back at this in right. three, three years from now and say, you know what? Right. <laughs> I hit the nail on the head on that one and that one not so much. I was way off on yeah. that one. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, it is funny when I look back at, at how I thought about things over the, you know, over the 15 years in, in this business, 15 plus years in this business, um, you know, how much has changed, but the, the core principles kind of remain the same. Well, I think, yes, a hundred percent. But I think also the maturity level of the person looking back changes. At least that, that one of that's my, one of my biggest lessons is when I was wrong, when I was younger, mm-hmm. I was embarrassed to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Now I just assume most of it's going to be wrong. Yeah. And I want to see how I adapted <laughs> to whatever I said that was wrong. Cause I obviously like, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. I know way better than I did five years ago. Right. But why do I think in five years, I wouldn't know way better than I do right now? I, I just now I assume I'm going to. And it's just, you know, always learning. But when when you're a kid, when you're 20 and you're 23, you don't, I didn't think that you were still learning. I thought like, all right, I did the learning. <laughs> and now, now I do the working. And, and this, you know, I just didn't get it. I was too young. And I, but I think it, like we started on in the earlier part of this uh, discussion, sometimes being young is helpful. Being a young idiot, you yep. know, just because you can put your head down and just bulldoze through things and you, you don't know enough to be hesitant sometimes and that can pay off. And that's you like know, for you having a real estate firm come up in the biggest collapse of the market. And then when, you know, when I was joking around earlier, not joking around, when I was explaining earlier that that my most important thing was learning my numbers. I mean, frankly speaking, in two thousand eight, if I, uh, I analyzed numbers and figures the way that I do now, I never would have continued the business uh, for several years. That could be said, you know, that that uh, that willful ignorance did give me the. Uh, confidence or false confidence, whatever you want to call it, to push forward and actually get it to the point where it is today. Yeah. I don't so. think it's a false confidence. I think just when you're younger, you weigh things differently mm-hmm. because because it's a different world that you're looking at. And, you know, for every every stage that you graduate to, you're looking through a different lens. And then you when you look back at the decisions you were making then, you're like, what was I thinking? But, of course, you had different glasses on at the time. It was different. And you had to make that decision to learn that it was the wrong decision. Right. You know, nobody's born innately with that, that knowledge. You just, you know, you don't have it. You have to develop it through mistakes. You know, that's one of my favorite parts. And it always comes up. And I think 
it's almost cliche. Everyone says, yeah, you have to fail to, to learn, right? And failure is okay. But I don't think it's okay for most people. I think that it's like one of those, you roll your eyes or you think, yeah, of course. But then people are still terrified of it and they, they're not okay with it. Because our culture is really not a fail-safe culture. In America, it's more of a, ha-ha, you screwed up, you know. And, and I, I think it's important, especially for people that own businesses or are planning to or want to, one of the biggest things to get comfortable with is you're going to be wrong more than you're right. And all you have to do is it's, it's how you handle what's next after you figure out that it was a mistake or that it was incorrect or what you do next, you know, learning from the mistake and becoming smarter and making better choices. That is how you become successful, not by never making the wrong choice. I think that's an illusion. I, I agree. I, I know. I think there's some really general maps that you can follow, right? You know, north, south, east and west, but. In, in the business world or the, the business uh, growing your business, there aren't, uh, you don't take exit number 35 to get to where you're going. No, you know, you're no, gonna, definitely You're going to wind not. up in the woods. You're going to wind up in a ditch. You're going to wind up in a bunch of ditches. Uh, and that's part of it. You've got to, um, one of the, one of the coaches that we work with um, uses the saying, and I'm, I'm not sure, certain if he came up with it, but I'm not sure who it's attributed to, but you can't sit in your driveway and wait for all the lights to turn green before you pull out. <laughs> You know, you got to get out there and then you got to make adaptations and, and decisions all along the way, uh, knowing, like you said, knowing that some of them are going to be wrong. Try to get the big ones right, but you won't even get all those right. Uh, but you just keep driving. You yeah, you try to get as many right as you can. Yeah. But just yeah. realize that maybe that right is a result of three wrongs. Exactly. You know, the, exactly. eventually you might get it, but yeah. don't plan on getting everything the first time around because you'll kill yourself if you're right. just beating yourself up over decisions that didn't work out. Or you'll be stuck in the driveway right. while somebody else never is leave the driveway, which, which is where a lot of people get stuck. They get stuck never taking the first step because it's so it's scary to take the first step and wonder, well, what if it doesn't go right? It's not going to. It, it, but it, take the first it, step so you can get that out of the way. Exactly. If you recognize that, if you expect that there will be failures, not failure, but failures along the way, uh, then it's liberating. Mm. It really is. It really it's a, it's a good feeling, I think, when you can turn the, the corner in your own brain to, to no longer really be beating yourself up and get to, okay, well, now what? Sure. Opens many, many doors. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of different directions you can go at that point. And just like that, we're over an hour. So um, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I, I'm in no rush, but I don't want to keep you longer than, uh, than I've requested of your time either. No, I think we've, I think we've touched upon some, some great points and uh, really appreciate you inviting me to join you here. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And just like that. 